the camera and hold it wide open for a few seconds and then they were like, did we do ICP jokes, do it all the time? Get ready, get ready, get ready, here we go. <laughs> so um, we're going we're gonna to look this morning at a, um, at a study regarding um, what I've, I've actually titled it, The Fountain of Holiness. Um, but it really is, in its most basic sense, this is a, a study regarding um, relationships. And if I had to propose a thought, uh, a thesis, um, if, if I might, for today, the thought is relationship or substance. Um, and, uh, and we'll actually talk a little bit about why that is and how that maybe can affect the, the view that we have of the Lord. It is my intention to be brief this morning um, as opposed to Thursday night when we came in. I think Thursday night I had 18 pages that I had not dialed down to nine pages, um, of which we didn't get through of all those. Thank you, Amber. Um, but, um, but today I've only got three. One for the Father, one for the Son, and one for the Holy Spirit. Um, but we've only got three pages to look at today, so uh, we shouldn't be too long. This morning's title is actually a quote from the great Saint Bonaventure. Saint Bonaventure was a um, a French priest and also theologian um, in the early, early, um, I think it would have been like um, eighth century. In his teaching of the Trinity, he said there are three books that we learn from and that align with the Trinity. The book of creation, or God the Father, the book of Jesus, or the Holy Word, and the book of experience, or the Holy Spirit. But his point is that we, oftentimes, we have a thought. In fact, I saw a sign the other day um, that said, um, uh, I think it was last night, actually, the big billboard that had a picture of the Bible on it, and it said, um, your manual for life, call to learn more. That's an interesting perspective. Because depending on what verse you decide to pluck from, you can learn some stuff. There's a lot of things in the Bible. In fact, there, there are things in the Bible that, that it, uh, I would venture to say that all of us would agree on. Hey, let's not do that. Slavery being like, you know, a starting one. No, Old and New Testament both sanction slavery. And I'm kind of not cool with that. So it's just an interesting thing how we look at and we say, well, the Bible, again, I'll, I quoted this before a couple weeks ago. <laughs> the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, that's an interesting thought. And I believe in the Word. If you're uh, music, you know me and you know that. But it's an interesting thing, and I love this idea from this saint in that he says, that the way we learn is bigger than that. And I love the idea that the, the, the creation actually is something we learn. I, I've tried to do a better job lately I, um, uh, of really learning or paying attention 
to the vibrancy of his love in creation around us. And I'm not talking about like where you, in the mornings, you like to go out and stare at the sunset longingly and let butterflies land on the tip of your nose. That's great. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I'm just simply saying that's not exactly what I mean. I think that you can find the Lord in that. But what I'm talking about is that you actually feel creation vibrating with his presence. And creation's a big word. Creation, we think like trees and rocks and ground. But creation is everything around us, the realm around us. So the, 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 what the saint actually taught is that we learn from three books. The book of creation, the book of the word, which is Jesus, in the Bible. And thirdly, the book of experience, which is the book of the spirit. And I love that he equated the book of experience with the book of the spirit. Number one, because the Holy Spirit, the comforter, is the one that leads us into all truth. Number two, because I think it's an interesting thing that when we describe the Spirit, we have to use metaphors. Right? Can anybody describe to me a, the Spirit of God and not use a metaphor? It's just nearly impossible. Unless you're just using pronouns like him, it, or whatever you prefer to use. But other than that, we're going to have to. Why? Because there's an element of mystery to it. Just as in the element of the experience of your life, there should be mystery. In fact, I would suggest to you, if you don't have more mystery in your life than revelation, you probably don't have as much revelation as you think you do. If there's not more unknowing than knowing, you probably don't know as much as you think. But within humanity, and especially good old red, white, and blue American Christianity, we want to know. I want truth, because truth is a destination in our minds. That's why people learn something or experience something in the Lord, and they cling to it with their last breath, like it's their, like it's their life, because in many ways it's become their life. And so as soon as somebody hears something, so you can almost, in, in some instances, not all, you all are clearly God's favorites and thus the exceptions to this rule. But one of the things you find as you look at most Christians is you can tell when they met the Lord by what they believe. Their perspective of God is typically indicative of when they met the Lord because there are eras and there are seasons in which things, dispensations, dimensions in which things are released. So you can, there are two sure, well, three, three sure telling ways to know when somebody got saved. The worship music they like. They're speaking in tongues language. I think there was about a 20-year span where we had was about 20 years long. So if somebody starts off their tongues with a like they're starting up a cold, you know, Yamaha on a on a winter's morning, you you can tell that's the time period. Okay. Um, then there's the Shabbababa, but that's a whole nother, that's a different group. Sometimes they overlap, but um, then you the 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 um, uh, the third thing is how they talk about the Lord. If God's mad, I can tell you when they got saved. If God's ticked off at all of humanity and just ready to smack them on the back of the head, I can pretty well point out when they got saved. That's just the way it works. And 
so what we find is, though, we think that truth is a destination. So we get there, and then we're like, we've arrived, and we cling to it. And anything outside of that truth is a threat to our truth because we so associate that truth to eternity. And so we think if we let go of that understanding, we let go of everything. This has nothing to do with the message, but let me just say that until you let go, you won't have the message. Truth is always on the other side of the veil. And the hardest thing to let go of and find the hand that exists on the other side is let go of the last time you felt it. Jesus accepted you. 
And what I mean by that is not like Jesus accepted you like, well, I don't know if I want you. Can you persuade me? And you got to get some sales pitch. Really, you've heard Don Potter talk about this. Really, you want me on your team? I can do good things for you. You know, I can really help you out. I've got great songs. I'm supplicating, but supplicate with me. So when you see all of this, that idea of acceptance is not where you come to God and you persuade him and then you accept him. The idea is that God found form in humanity and that in the midst of that humanity, he leaned into us so that from that point forward, we could know him completely, perfectly, and in fullness of life. He accepted you. They actually found room for you in the Trinity. It's a weird thing to think about. Now, I didn't just, just in case anybody's sharpening their stones to throw, I'm not saying you're equal with God. What I'm saying is the divine relationship that existed perfectly before man was ever formed between Father, Son, and Spirit, where they communed together, they found room for you at that table. to the brilliant Greek philosopher and scientist Aristotle. Aristotle taught that there were 10 different qualities to all things. I'm not going to list all 10 of them, but two will suffice. He said there was substance and there was relationship. Substance is that which is independent of all else and can stand on its own. Aristotle ranked substance as the highest quality of those 10 things. In the early Christian traditions, the West tried to build on that Aristotelian to prove that this God whom we had come to understand as the Trinitarian God was a substance. We didn't want this relationship God because we wanted something tangible. We wanted a substantial God, a God of substance who could prove that he was as good as anybody else's God. See, everybody else's God at that time had figures. Our God was the wind. So when Paul went to debate about the God, the unknown God on Mars Hill, he didn't have a God to point to, which is why he could stand where the unknown God was and say, here's my God, he's the wind. Do you understand? And so that's why I am that I am became the first name that was communicated because the idea always started with it communicated in in Moses and, and in Egypt in that scenario is because there was always this looking to have a God you could put your 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 thumb on, this God you could touch. Why? Because he liked control. Sorry to tell you, we like control. And a God I can see, and a God I can touch, and a God I can define, I can also control. If I can measure him, I can control him. And so... What we did in the Western church is we took what Aristotle said about substance being above all, and we used that to say this is who God is. God is a substance. He's a thing. God is a, a thing. I can touch him. I can point at him. I can, I can define who he is. And he does this. God does these things. What actually you find as you study is that Jesus defined God quite differently. Jesus himself, the Son called himself one with the Father. In fact, he actually gave birth, and we'll look at this in John 17, 
the clear premises of relationship. When Jesus defined the Father, what he defined God as is relationship. And I'd like to, if, if I can, suggest to you a radical thought. I'm not saying only that we know God in relationship. I'm saying that God is relationship. He is that. He can only be known in relationship because he is relationship. Every relationship that's ever existed, right, wrong, good, or bad, has existed from the model first of him as relationship. He is relationship. I'm not going to go too far with that this morning because we've already had two sermons in a row where people just went off the Emmy Long speeches. So I'm going to try and take it easy today, just to be clear. Who you are is who you are in the Father, as Jesus put it. That is your meaning and your identity. John chapter 17, verse 22. And I ask not, this is Jesus' prayer for the disciples and everyone else. I ask not only for these disciples, but also for those who will one day believe in me through their message. I pray for them all to be joined together as one, even as you and I, Father, are joined together as one. Do you guys realize how radical this message is? We read it and we kind of go, oh, yeah, you know, we're all one, like Jesus saying, we're one, we're all one together, we're all one person, we're all good, we're good. And we kind of blow it off. Do you realize he just said, I want them to be on the same plane as you and I? I want them to be in us to the same degree that you and I are in him. That is a radical move toward communion. And we're stuck back here, ten steps behind, still calling ourselves dirty, rotten sinners who were maybe saved from the guttermost under the uttermost. And only anything good I've got inside of me, I got from Jesus. I actually was looking at hymns the other day, and there's actually a hymn that says, God, you are good, you are good, there's nothing good in me. That was the chorus of the hymn. And we wonder why we have shame issues. We wonder why people don't know who they are. Because we enter into this relationship with him from a basis of broken, no good, dirty, rotten scoundrelhood. I don't even know if scoundrelhood's a word, but if it is, that's us. So we're, we're that thing. We're just a bunch of dirty, rotten scoundrels, and we think that, oh, God, thank God for Jesus because he saved me. Well, yes, he did save you, and thank God for Jesus. But the reality is you're not some piece of dirt. If you, if we, I, I just have to. So here's the deal. If we were as junk and dirt and filthy and unworthy and no good as humans as we think we are, then why did God choose to put his form in us to redeem us? Do you think God would become something worthless? But we enter in from the framework of broken, and we enter in from the framework of, um, uh, of, of sin nature, not from the nature of goodness. 
he looked at you after he created you and he said, it is good. And if you, if you want to argue that after the fall that it became not good, fine. Jesus is the second Adam that redeemed what happened with the fall anyway. So even I'll accept your argument and counter that post-Jesus, you are now good. And I would also argue that that doesn't mean if you've accepted Jesus. Because what the Bible says is he came to redeem all creation unto him and redemption's already been done. So guess what? All humanity post-Jesus is good. You can't argue that using, you can't argue against that using scripture. It's just fact. And any other thing is a theory that we swallowed as Christians. So Jesus says, I pray that they would all be one, even as we're one. Verse 21, I prayed for them to become one with us so that the world will recognize that you sent me. I, for the very glory you've given me, um, that I have given them, excuse me, so that they will be joined together as one and experience the same unity that we enjoy. That they will experience the same joy and unity that we enjoy, Jesus and God. Jesus says, yep, that's now what's afforded to you. Does anybody, let me ask you this question. Was there ever a day where Jesus had a hard time connecting with God? Is that because you believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Or is that because you believe that God can't be separated from us? Either way, what Jesus just said trumps your argument. What Jesus just said is it doesn't matter if you believe that's because Jesus was the Messiah and fully God, or if that means that it's available to all, because what Jesus said is because I am fully God, I have to be fully man. You live, verse 23, fully in me, and now I live fully in them, so that they will experience perfect unity. And the world will be convinced that you sent me, for they will see that you love each one of them with the same passionate love that you have for me. Dude, do you see this? This is incredible. How much do you think God loved Jesus? I mean, seriously. Do you think there was ever, so that beloved son business, you know, heaven's on earth, two different times he says this, both times God speaks from heaven and he says, this is my beloved son. That same love is the way he looks at you. Say, he's relational. We'll get there. Verse 24. Father, I ask that you allow everyone that you have given me to be where with me where I am. And, and we're not going to get into it because in two weeks we're going to talk about the rapture revelation in heaven. But that is not talking about in the afterlife when you die. Just to be clear. That's not talking about your mansion in glory or your cabin in the hills if you're Jeff Hunter. Because that's what everybody says. I don't even know if I could just have a cabin out by the pond in the hills. I would count it all glory to God. That's not what it means. It's not talking about that. It's just not. That they would be with me where I am. He wasn't side when he was saying this. What has he just been defining? I'm in the Father. So with me where I am would be where? In 
their father. I know it's a lot easier to think of Jesus with his carpenter belt on up there building us little shanties to move into, hoping to move on up. Do we really, I mean, we think that to some degree, right? Oh, he's over here just building me away. That's why he, that's why he was born to Joseph, the carpenter's son, so he'd get some experience. I've heard it taught, seriously, that when Je- that's why Jesus was born to a carpenter. Well, clearly, carpentering didn't work out so well. That's why he had to go be Messiah. Verse 25, you are my righteous father, but the unbelieving world has never known you in the perfect way that I know you. This is what we said when last uh, two Thursdays ago when we talked about Jesus being what all scripture points to and why Jesus is what God had to say. The Bible in the Old Testament was in what we all could read and what they all said was unable to depict God correctly and clearly. It was incomplete. That's the best way to put it. It wasn't wrong. It's just incomplete. So God sent Jesus to fulfill what he had to tell. So what Jesus said here is, you're my righteous father, but the unbelieving world has never known you in the perfect way that I know you. And all those that believe in me also know that you have sent me. I have revealed to them who you are and will continue to make you even more real to them so that they may experience the same endless love that you have for me. For your love will now live in them even as I live in them. We humans are not a kind of independent substance, nor is any of creation. Everything exists in radical relationship. In fact, we believe this if we look at the world. We now have what we call ecosystems, orbits, cycles, circulatory systems, seasons. All of these things work together in relationship. How and why is it that we then believe that we should function as independence? God is relationship. God is relational. And the way he communicates to us in his love is always going to be through that vein of relationship. Yet to the mere mind, uh, excuse me, to the Western mind, this mere relationship looks like second or third best. Who wants this to just be a relationship? I want to be a self-made man or woman. In fact, do you remember a few political seasons ago, I think two presidential races ago, there was a big thing that came out because somebody had said, and I don't remember who it was, but somebody made a comment that we didn't get anywhere on our own, but our community and our, our government and everything helped us get to where we were. And there was, it became a big stink because everybody said, so we're looking at you and your business and saying, you didn't build that, somebody else built it for you. And what it really became is this beat yourself up, and I'm not criticizing that, but I'm just saying that that struck a chord in so many people, shows you how much of our American mentality is, I got this. I'm a self-made man. Nobody got me where I am, but I pulled on my boots with my pink straps every day, got to where I am. What, and that's fine, but we can't allow that to intersect with this thing that says we were designed in his image, and he is relationship. He's not just a substance that exists separate from everything else. He is relationship, and the way he's known is always going to be relational. And you cannot know somebody in relationship and not experience surrender and vulnerability. 
this hyper-individualism laid down deeply in Latin, Western, and specifically American Christianity. I would like to suggest that while the Trinitarian God certainly has the ability to sustain himself apart from our assistance, that God is not simply singular substance. He is relationship. Has anybody ever heard the term making Jesus your what Lord and Savior? Communal Lord and Savior, or is it personal? We even ask people, our question ultimately is, are you going to go to hell? But our question, the way we ask it is, do you have a personal relationship with God? Anybody ever ask? Do you realize that that is not, first of all, that's not scriptural. Second of all, that didn't even come into play until about 500 years ago. They didn't talk like that. Because what they were, what the, and I'm not saying that my relationship with God is dependent on any of you. We do have to have an individual relationship. But the reason that they didn't talk like that is because the early church understood that we've moved forward as a community of believers. We move together. Two and three together is where he is. Iron sharpening iron. All of this language is relational. And, and what we've done is we've so separated it, then that we think whenever we're going through a hard time, that's just, well, I'm just stand, me standing here with Jesus. You were never intended to stand alone. You were intended to stand together alongside of one another, knowing that you're standing inside and alongside of him. And so even the idea of a personal savior, that is an individualistic mindset that is not the way scripture reads. Jesus, it doesn't say Jesus came to restore, even for God so loved the, the world that he sent his only begotten son. It doesn't just say so that God, God loved you. Yes, he loved you. And yes, it is individualistic. But there's a move towards all of creation that we have to understand. And as soon as we implement all these other things, it becomes this thing where it's like me and God. And I, I, I really, really get concerned when people say it's just me and Jesus. I, I just do. I think there's. I think as soon as you don't allow people to interact and exchange with you on a spiritual level, there's something that there is almost inherently an arrogance that happens. That's not a compliment. But people who are toxic, in fact, so even sociopathic, are always those who cannot maintain and sustain relationships. They typically run from them. I recently read uh, an article by a psychiatrist who made the statement that at first sounds like an oversimplification. He said that now, as an old man, I now believe that every mentally ill person I have ever met is basically a narcissist. And while we know that there are physical reasons for some mental illness, he says that loneliness is the most frequent activator of those illnesses. Once again, I, I'm not a doctor, and I'm not saying that there aren't physical and, and physiological applications. But you absolutely do find that the number one cause for people who wrestle with mental illness is the inability to access to, to exchange in relationship with people. They close themselves off, and in some ways, that opens the door for these other things. You are cutting off who you were designed to be because you are relational. You were made in his image. 
Richard Rohr says it this way. When you don't give other people any power in your life or when you block others out, I believe you have entered the path of spiritual death. When you stop allowing people to speak into you and change and you say, nope, I'm hunkering down. All I know about God is all I'm ever going to know. I'm reading the Bible this way. This is who God is. As soon as you stop allowing that exchange where you buffer one another and where you encourage one another, as soon as you stop allowing that, you have started down a path of spiritual death. That isolationism is not what God intends for us. Uh, this is why the earliest Christian teachers began to teach the Trinity. Because for God to have always been love, it would have required another party to exist. You get that? Love is extreme. It's not static. It's not stationary on its own. It's not solitude. Love is extreme. So the earliest guys that started, because you don't find the Trinity in the Bible. You don't find it here. But we find it as a pattern through Scripture. So as soon as they started trying to define it scripturally, where they started was God is love. And if God is love, there has to be more than just a singular being just sitting there on a throne somewhere. Because he's always been, and he's always been love, and he'll always be love. And God is relationship. And the way we exchange with him is in relationship. But what happens so oftentimes is as soon as we enter a challenge, what do we do? Do we press in or do we withdraw? Almost automatically, human nature, as soon as you enter a hard time, you withdraw from exchange and relationship. You go internal. Me. I'm just sitting here. It's me and Jesus, and I'm going to try to figure this out. And, and, you think, and then, very quickly, God's mad at you. Other people are mad at you. All this stuff's going on. And you just start to build all of these doctrines around this thought. And that's not who God is. Luke chapter 24, verse 28, one of my favorite story, post-resurrection narratives, um, is this road to Emmaus. And I love that, that within this you see what Jesus is intending to do in people that were exchanged with him. Keeping in mind, I'd like to remind you, the road to Emmaus, they were walking away from God. These two disciples on this road, it says they were fleeing from the temple. So if everybody else is coming into Jerusalem to worship in the temple, they're going away from it because they're afraid for their lives. Now, I'm not saying they walked away from God and abandoned their faith, but clearly they were running. And within that, Jesus comes up alongside of them, walking away from Jesus. They were with Jesus. Jesus gets crucified. Everybody thinks our gooses are cooked. That our leader is gone, this is over, it's done for. They're running away, and Jesus comes up alongside of them. How incredible of a picture of God's love is that? That in walking away from Jesus out of fear, Jesus walks with them. So as he walks alongside of them, he speaks to them. And I love the three things that happen. Number one, he walks with them. Number two, what he does is he wants to sit at table and eat with them. That's just good. The thing that Jesus wants to do in walking with these people and the thing that he knows can restore them back out of a fear posture into a love posture is let's get at the table together. Tell me that's not good. That is the power of the table. That is the power of being in communion with him. That literally what he always wants to do when you are in, in 
at some point of challenge, when you're struggling, when there's hard times, when you're in whatever, when there's difficulties, he's always trying to get you back to the table. He's always trying to get you back to the point where you commune with him and where you're relational with him again. So as he gets them back to the table, Jesus talks to them and then he vanishes. And what they say is so powerful. Why didn't we recognize him? Didn't our hearts burn with the flames of holy passion while he was beside us? So the three things that happen, he walks with them, he gets them to the table, and the interaction of commune or relationship within that ignites within them the fire that burns within him. That's the point. And, and it's, it's never out of reach. When we were literally, what this shows us is we were literally made for this love. We were made for this relationship. This relationship that through Jesus we can enter into. I believe this is one reason so many have struggled with the thought that God is loving. This is why many of us have wrestled with being taught to be afraid of God. Because this place is a place of relationship where you have to surrender and exchange deeply. You press into the weakness. You press into the struggle. You press into the darkness many times. I'm not talking evil. I'm saying moments that feel dark. Sometimes you have to press through that to find light. And so in our religion, and frankly all other religions, they, we have been taught, I'm going to touch this and move on, but organizationally we have been taught that it requires separation from God as the starting point for humanity. The starting point of humanity for every religion that I have found on the earth requires separation from God. Why? Because without it, our system wouldn't work. It has to be you are separated, but if you subscribe to this religion, you'll become unseparated. If there wasn't separation, they wouldn't need our religion. So it requires separation. But Paul says that Jesus is all in all. In fact, you find that on the last scripture on your sheet in Colossians 1, 5 through 17. But there is hope because the reality is even though our religion has taught us that we're that God is separate from us because of our sin and that God, when we are, don't know him and haven't prayed the magic prayer and said the password and let him into our heart, that God is mad at us and he's separated from us and he doesn't know us. The reality is, even though our religious systems have told us that, we've got great news. God's never been religious. God has never been religious. Jesus has never been religious. In fact, I would suggest to you that Jesus never came with the intention to even start a religion. And quite frankly, if Jesus was on the earth today, he probably wouldn't subscribe to most of our postmodern Christianity in his name. He'd probably be embarrassed. It does mess with people when we say, you remember that Jesus wasn't a Christian. And they're like, what? I actually said that to one guy one time, and he said, well, no, he converted. Christian. He did? So when you think about the idea 
of this separation from God. That's what our religious systems require. Is that God's mad at you? So here's the thing: because God was mad at me when I was in sin before I got saved. So anytime that I go back to sin, God's mad at me again, and now I'm separate from God again until I ask for repentance. Because God, all there's this line that happens as soon as I make a mistake, right? How many times have you prayed for something and it not happened, and your first thought been, "I need to, I need to repent in case I've done something wrong." There it is. It is intrinsic into the way we think about God. And what we've taught is that then each religion has a separate set of rules that you have to go back to and re-prescribe to to make sure you're in line with those rules so that you're not separate from God anymore. Good news, God's not religious. He doesn't subscribe to our religions or our lines or our thoughts or our boundaries or our boxes. On no Sunday ever throughout eternity has God looked at the the Son and the angels and the Spirit and said, hey, who's in charge of the service today? He's not religious. He doesn't work that way. He's always been relational. And from his side of the equation, there's never been a separation in the first place. God's side of the equation, there's never been a separation in the first place. He has always been in and around us, moving through love, grace, and joy. Religion says that God is substance to be understood, to be acquired, or to be achieved. Lines can separate us from this substance. Lines, sins, bad thoughts, bad words, bad movies, bad music. All I have to do is hear Paradise City by Guns N' Roses, and now all of a sudden God can't hear my prayers. And sometimes I would worry when I was in, in, in public that these things got in me and I didn't even know it. I would hear a song that was playing. I didn't even choose the song. And I'm going, God, I didn't ask for ACDC. It just happened. But as soon as Highway to Hell comes on, I've got to find a corner and repent, because as soon as that happens, I'm separate from God. I remember avoiding Hot Topic in the Honey Creek Mall. I, Cinnabon was across the street, so I'd have to walk, or across the way, I'd have to walk up like this. Because if I looked inside, something was going to get on me, and I'd be separate from God. That's where all the goths were. And Ozzy Osbourne was there. They're playing all that devil stuff. And so what happens is, as soon as I think that, God's separate from me. Is he that fragile? Is is the God of all creation so fragile that our thought or our word or our deed can cut us off from his hand? He is not substance to be understood. You're never going to arrive. You're never going to attain. You're never going to accomplish. And that's not a put down. That should be the most exciting news you've had all day. Because the reality is, we get to discover by step, by step, by step, by step, that the key is relational. And after 20 years of being with God, I'm still learning new things. And it's absolutely incredible. Doesn't quite come up with that. He's the God of the universe. 
this separation has created the platform for shame and distance, which allowed us to create a holiness language which is no longer a language of intimacy and relationship. Let me just say this. Any holiness language that you hear that doesn't speak in context of relationship and intimacy is not holiness language from heaven. This, this idea has created these separations that allow shame and distance to come in. And those shame and distance languages created our holiness language, which is not a language of intimacy and relationship. It becomes a language of distance that has somehow achieved holiness through fear and condemnation whereby we see our wretchedness. How many times have you been told when you see the holiness of God, you'll realize how wretched you really are? I would suggest that when you see the holiness of God, you would actually see who you are beyond your wretchedness. Not your decrepitude. You would see that you're beautifully and wonderfully made. In fact, what is what is Paul saying when he's referencing this? That when we see him, we'll realize we're like him. When we see him, we're made like him. That is the idea of this. So all of our language, even in holiness, has said that God does this, and now I, I do this over here, and if I'm not doing that, then I'm out. But true reverence for God is found in the same way it's found in all of our relationships. Proximity. We find awe and wonder becoming clearer as we draw nearer in relationship. Not as we build walls and boundaries to limit us, to keep us from God due to our missing of the mark. See, within our relationships, the clearer I see, the closer I come to my wife, the clearer I see her, the more I know of her, the more I'm awe and allowed to be. From a distance, the picture isn't quite so clear. Yet our reverence, our holiness theology told us we had to keep our hand out because we were afraid at any moment he was going to come down with fire and burn us all. The closer you get to him, the more in awe you become and the more you find that in the end, he really is your father. I would suggest that one of his favorite things to do is to visit our mess and our mistake with his tangible presence. Because if we believe the scriptures, he was with us the whole time. Our institutions, while certainly well-intending, are not living. An institution has less life than a rock. And the only reason that they have any semblance of life is because of the human beings that exist inside of them. So you know what? I, I don't believe for a moment that anything that I say or do, any angel or any demon, any principality or power, thing created above or beneath, can keep me from loving him. And that love is found by his relationship first and foremost in our relationships. He is relationship. And so within that, Things get messy. Think of a relationship you have in your life. And find one for me that at some point hasn't gotten messy. Why? Because relationships.
relationship involves surrender and vulnerability, and that makes my spouse happy. And my relationship with him only brings me true peace and purpose. And even in the midst of that mess, he doesn't ever walk away. Because it's relationship. He's always been relational, and he's always been faithful. That's the God that God promised and sealed that we've been invited instead of kicked out. That they've invited us instead of us being kicked out. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for all the things that have been said. We thank you again for the incredible testimonies that have been shared. Father, we thank you for the, the, the works that you're doing. We ask you to, to help us to be aware, more aware even, of the works that you're going to be doing and, and the things that, that these have opened the door for. Father, I ask that you would continue to do the work that has been declared even through the worship time following the testimonies, that your light is penetrating all darkness. Father, and that when light comes, darkness just has to flee away. We thank you that you are light. And we ask you that you would help us to walk in an awareness of that measure, as we read in John 17, where we have been made one with you, where we're in you, and at all times you're around us. At all times we can see things the way you see them, and from the perspective wherewith you view them. Help us, Father, to not be uh, bound by, persuaded by, enticed by, or intoxicated by any other system. Let the bounds, let the, the chains, let the bondage of all that other stuff fall away, and let us live and exist and breathe and move in and through and be this place that you've given us where we can know you and keep knowing you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right.